Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. So there seems to be a bit of a crisis in America. As there often is. I I know. Like, which crisis are we talking about on today's podcast? (laughs) (laughs) There's always a crisis that we need to discuss and offer our our answers to. But this is one that I didn't realize we have yet to record a podcast on this topic. And it's something that internally we talk about often. Um, But there was someone who recently just asked me, hey, have you guys thought about this topic? And I was like, yeah, all the time. But no, we don't have a podcast on it. So sorry about that. So today we actually want to talk about a crisis in America and it is the mental health crisis that... That's one of the big ones. It's it's huge right now. Yeah. And um, I think the pandemic has obviously brought awareness to it, has brought a surge to it. Like the pandemic has heightened it in terms of the number of people dealing with it. But I do think we're we're in a point in our culture and society where people are more comfortable talking about it. We're more aware of it. Unfortunately, I'm not sure if that change on the topic has occurred within the church quite yet. Yeah. I mean, certainly this was a crisis long before COVID hit, but COVID really threw gasoline on the fire once people were trapped in their homes with their thoughts and weren't able to go outside and Mm -hmm. socialize and do all the things that, you know, are good, not only for your physical well-being, but your emotional and your psychological well-being as well. And so it's really exacerbated the issue. And it's something that um, this conversation that us as a nation are really continuing to wrestle with, like, what are the resources? What's the protocol? How do we uh, destigmatize some of these things? Um, and fortunately, in a lot of churches, they're having similar conversations, but that's not always the case. And I think in in, in some churches, depending on where you are, um, some of the, the thinking around mental health can be pretty archaic and pretty regressive. And so today we want to talk about mental health generally, but then also address some of the more regressive views on it and address those on a theological level to see if there's something a little bit more robust and healthy that that we can have in the place of whatever uh, traditional mindset might be keeping us from being healthy. So we're going to talk about that and more, and we'll do that in just a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art 
inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. So before we kind of dive into the theological aspect and the church aspect of the mental health crisis happening in America, I think it's important to actually put some numbers behind what we're talking about instead of just calling it a crisis, but actually say, no, there has been research done. There have been studies done, uh, surveys done. And like you said, the pandemic is not um, the beginning of the crisis, but it certainly has heightened it. So uh, from 2019 to 2020, which would be pre-pandemic, right? Sort of. We're almost and then there. going into it, yeah. yeah. Uh, 20% of adults were experiencing some form of mental illness. That is equivalent to over 50 million Americans. Wow. Over 1 in 10 youth in the U.S. are experiencing depression that is severely impairing their ability to function at school or work, at home with their family, or even in their social life. Um. of youth, which they're classifying that from age 12 to 17, have reported um, from at least one major depressive episode in the past year. So 16% of teenagers, 12 to 17, are experiencing some kind of like a major episode in their life already related to depression. 11% of youth which is over 2.7 million people are experiencing severe major depression. So this is certainly impacting the younger generation in just like massive waves, but it is also happening in other generations. And I think we've mentioned this sort of on some podcasts, whether that's the other generations are just not talking about it and you know, the younger ones just feel more comfortable talking about it or if there really is something happening within the culture now that's bringing out mental illness in a way that it just didn't in previous generations. I mean, it's probably a both and, right? I mean, probably even beyond just comfortability of talking about it, it's having the language wrapped around it to describe some of these things. Whereas like, you know, someone... uh, who in previous generations had a severe mental illness, people would just say like, oh, they're they're crazy or they're senile. They would, they would write it off because there was no real understanding of how to speak about these things or understand them. And so now we just have a lot more clinical language to wrap our arms around the human experiences that have been common for generations, but we have a better understanding of now. And then also with that, there's probably an increased comfortability because we do have that language to discuss these things. Um, but it's still a process because in, in many respects, there's still a lot of stigma attached to it. And, um, it, we're obviously in a, in a crisis as, as a nation, as these numbers, uh, seem to continue to rise. Yeah. And that crisis is not only the amount of people that are experiencing mental health, but also the ability for our healthcare system to actually care for people. So the crisis is happening on like multiple levels within the um, structure of our society right now. And I think it would be disingenuous of me not to express my own battles with mental health, um, particularly depression and anxiety. 
Um, and so I, I wanted to be part of that movement of being open about it and be part of talking about these things that so many people are dealing with. I mean, youth, it's 2.7 million adults is 50 million. So like my experience is not alone and there, I'm sure there aren't many listeners who are listening right now who are struggling with some sort of mental um, health issues. Right. And this is something that for whatever reason tends to come up for me during pregnancy and we are now expecting our third baby, which is dropping the announcement in like a weird way. Right. But (laughs) (laughs) like in a, in like a, are we excited? Are we sad? No, it's exciting. But with this third pregnancy has, um, come depression for me and that's just part of the hormonal change and just the many changes happening within my body that for whatever reason I don't know why um but this now being my second pregnancy of experiencing depression I'm now more aware of the signs and things like that but I can tell you like we are in a crisis from a health perspective because I had to call, I think it was 60 different therapists. You say 66 zero, right? Six, six zero. Yeah. Different, like they're just going down a list trying to find somebody who can meet with me because I'm just in such a state that I need help in some way. And for personal reasons due to pregnancy and due to all of the like medical advice I'm given, Um, medication is risky at this point in my pregnancy. Um, so anyways, trying to find a therapist, what I'm trying to say is trying to find a therapist has been so difficult. And we have good insurance. Yes. Like we are pretty well off in regard to our health coverage and even still finding someone who a has availability uh, and B takes the insurance and even then you're still paying a copay. It's really difficult. You have to really try hard to get some kind of uh, mental health care and or, usually and, uh, pay through the nose for it, even if you're covered with good insurance. Well, and not only that, what's been so challenging for me is when you really are struggling with the depression. You don't have the motivation to be putting in all that effort. It's so much effort. And if it weren't for... It's, it's, a, it's a lot of effort to put in one phone call, let alone yes. 60. Yes. I would literally be like, okay, I'm going to slot this amount of time in my morning to... I have to do this. I have to find somebody. I need to like seek out help because um, I'm in a bad way right now. And I know that for the sake of my family, for raising my kids, for my own overall health, like this is what I have to do. But it was so, so hard to find someone. And even then, like, who's comfortable just greeting a list? Like, just dial the number. Do you, can you take me? Yes or no? (laughs) No. And then just going down, like, at that point, you can't be picky. Like, of course, you want to be connected to your therapist, but. And that's the other weird thing, too. Like, when you're going to make a doctor's appointment or, like, get your primary care physician 
you just like whoever is first on the list, you're like, fine. And then if you hate them, then you change it. But like when it comes to like a mental health professional, there is like this more personal element to it that when you're just reading off names on a list with the phone number, it, it yeah. is more of a, it's kind of a more awkward thing. Well, and even just the hurdle too of like all of the questions you have to fill out prior to it. And then at that point, honestly, you've already committed so much time and energy that you're just really hoping who is on the other end of the video chat is someone you connect with because it's already taken weeks and weeks to find somebody and then a few more weeks to get an appointment in. Um, And I would hope that for people with just like more severe cases, it's not taking this long, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, And if it weren't for a family member constantly checking in with me and saying, hey, have you found a therapist yet? Have you found a therapist yet? Do you need me to start dialing numbers for you? And me really just being in tears because it's overwhelming and I know I need help, but I can't figure out how to find help and I'm doing everything in my power to do it. So um, it's real, like the struggle of your own depression and then also the hurdles you have to jump through within the structure of our current crisis is really overwhelming and in a lot of ways pretty debilitating. Um So when we look at the mental health crisis in America, sure, there are a lot of different like aspects of it we can look at, right? We can see it as the government needs to like put more things in place. There needs to be more agencies that are dedicated to this. We need policy changes. We need reform in the healthcare. Like there's all these ways we can point at the structures of our society changing in order to help the mental health crisis happening. And sure, I'm sure there's a lot of things like it probably shouldn't have taken so long for me to finally find a therapist. Um, So systems are broken and overwhelmed and impacted. But today we want to talk about what is the role for the church to play and how should Christians be responding to this health crisis. So instead of pointing the finger at the large organizations and structures that need to change. How can we be part of extending our arms around people who are struggling with mental health? Right. Before we even address the broken systems of society when it comes to mental health care, we need to take some time to try and dismantle some of the broken thinking and the broken theology around mental health that happens in the church um, and just you know, the myriad issues that get layers of Bible verses attached to them and then they get some kind of authoritative weight that are really uh, perhaps not healthy and um, ultimately not good theology. So we want to take some time to address how mental health has been viewed in the church historically, um, the way that we've sought to treat it ourselves, um, and then uh, maybe evaluate how effective and how biblical those things are. But we'll dive into that conversation in just a moment. Do you want to better understand the Bible and give biblical answers to those who ask you about your faith? Hi, this is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Podcast Show. Listen to us weekly as we bring the truth often found in the ivory towers of seminary down to the steeple towers of local church. Join me along with many of the nation's top theologians as we offer answers to life tough questions from an apologetic perspective. Subscribe to the show at lifeaudio.com. 
So when it comes to the church's response to mental health, and I feel like we should say this from the outset, there are churches that do really well with this. Um, I think we, we go to our church that does really well with this, that um, if you're someone who's in crisis, you can talk to a care counselor, a care counselor will, will pray for you, but then like they have some training to assess, like, do you need to talk to a mental health professional? And they refer you out and they're very supportive and they endorse those kinds of treatment options and, and things like that. Uh, in addition to the spiritual care that, you know, the church can uniquely provide. But for a lot of churches, both in the past and currently, and the, when I say currently, it's kind of an alarmingly large segment of the American church looks at mental health, uh, uh, illnesses and says that they don't exist. Like depression is, is uh, a lack of having hope and joy in Jesus and anxiety is having a lack of faith in Jesus and, you know, diagnoses like ADD or ADHD, like, oh, we're just pumping our kids full of Ritalin for no reason. And really what they need is discipline, you know, spare the rod and hate the child kind of a thing. And so um, a lot of these kind of, you know, really, um, debilitating but in, in many senses garden variety mental illnesses the common ones like anxiety depression add adhd whatever it might be um a lot of church leaders say like you know what those those aren't issues that the world can help you with uh those are issues of your faith and so if you just fix your faith then your emotions and your mental health will no longer be an issue um the problem is people have been trying to do that and they still have whatever psychological issues that are undiagnosed and uh, untreated. Yeah. And that's because there's not a, a credibility or a, rec- a recognizing that this indeed is something happening that is not within your control. Like it's not anything you have caused to happen. Um, and therefore you're struggling with it. And there are some churches and even just within Christian communities. So not necessarily like, you know, speaking from the pulpit, but speaking from just congregational conversation is it's an element of weakness within you. And that's why you're struggling with these things. I mean, even in my own experience of struggling with depression, being a new mom, I've had people say, well, honey, motherhood is hard and it's just, it's just difficult that's just how it is. Right. So buck up, kid. Yeah. So kind of just, just have take faith. your duties. Yeah. This is what you have. You've been blessed with this child. Like, how could you how could you be anything other than full of joy? And, so like this. Yeah. And I just like that. And even knowing myself enough to say, this isn't just me being sad. This isn't just me yeah, being sad about being tired from being up all night with a newborn. Like there's something else happening. Although the tired does factor into. The, right. I mean, those things like. But it's not helpful. like you solve for that and you solve for the whole thing. But th- that is one factor. Right. Yeah. But, you know, you just have people who kind of brush it aside and tell you like, oh, this is just how it is. This is just life. Life is hard. And you're fine. Just pray about it. Seek the Lord and he will give you strength and you'll be fine. And not actually acknowledging that there's something else happening. So that 
lack of acknowledgement is is also like gaslighting people in a lot of ways, pretending like this thing doesn't exist and kind of like you're crazy for assuming this is more than just a hard stage in life, right? Yeah, and a lot of that unfortunately comes from kind of a long-standing anti-scientific bias within fundamentalism and evangelicalism, which really started with... Um, Charles Darwin in response to Charles Darwin and uh, his theory of macroevolution that if this is the science and it contradicts, you know, a young earth creationist understanding of the world, then obviously we can't trust science uh, in a lot of regards. And then when you get to a lot of like the psychological research, there's a lot of distrust there because of, you know, whether it's Sigmund Freud, who is not really as influential in today's counseling strategies as people might think or you know what whatever it might be there's this really strong bias against um psychology as 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 a science um they call it a pseudoscience they call it you know whatever insult you can hurl at it uh to the point where so i have an undergraduate degree in psychology and uh, it's kind of baffling to some people within this wing of the church that I have an undergraduate degree in psychology and then I have a master of divinity uh, you know, in theological and pastoral studies because they see those things fundamentally at odds with one another. And in fact, the school that we went to, uh, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, there's a lot of people who think that uh, Biola has gone completely liberal, that they've left the Bible uh, because there is a graduate program uh, at Biola, Rosemead uh, School of Psychology, and they say, how can you be a Christian school and have a school of psychology that doesn't make any sense? And so like, that's the, the level of bias against right. the science of psychology, um, and which is a, a broad um, area of study, and then the subset within that uh, being... Um, treatment and therapy um, practices and and research and things like that. Yeah, and it's really has such a negative effect in a, in a number of ways, especially for someone suffering with mental illness. Those are people that are impacted the most by saying, this is not real, this science isn't real, we don't trust any of that, because then they can't make sense of what's happening in their life. And... Of course, we're not always going to make sense of everything, but there is science and there is research and there are people who have dedicated their lives to understanding why is it that people um, have certain life experiences and a lot of it does end up being related to mental illness. And so that's a one response is this just total denial that mental illness exists that it's anything more than you just being a weak person, that it's anything more than you just lacking faith. But then we have another side, and this is where we might get some people upset at us, but um, the more that I really look into this and see people who suffer from mental illness need more than just this aspect, um, the other response that churches have is often called biblical counseling. Well, and actually those two responses are often one and the same. We say that psychology is a pseudoscience that is antichrist. Um, 
mental illness isn't real. What you really need is biblical counseling. And so there's some there's shades of of where the, the, you are of on the, the spectrum because the people who are very anti uh, therapy can be very pro biblical counseling right. because evangelicals are are nothing if not prolific in ripping off uh, whatever the popular thing is and doing our cheap knockoff of it oh, for our. <laughs> If you listen to any Christian music in the 90s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, and for those of you who aren't familiar with this term, biblical counseling, I think it's good that we like define it. So biblical counseling is the process where the Bible is related individually to a person or persons who are struggling under the weight of a personal sin and or difficulties they're suffering. So basically you come... And share, you know, what it is that you're struggling with in your life, whether it's blatant sin or maybe it's depression or anxiety. But what's going to happen is you're going to sit down and meet with somebody who has taken a course, oftentimes through the church, that that course was created through a few other people who just came together. And if you have been trained in biblical counseling, sorry if I'm describing it in a way that that you have not experienced it, but this is the way that I've seen it done plenty of times is that course often has scripture verses that fit categories of sin or categories of struggle, right? And you'll sit down with that person, share your anxiety, for example, and they will read a verse to you, tell you to memorize this verse, pray this verse, and the Lord will heal you. Yeah, kind of at its crudest example would be like you come in and you say, I'm really struggling with um, feelings of anxiety. Um, and even the term anxiety is like, a, that's an umbrella term that is used a lot of times to describe things as minor as like, I'm really stressed this week to I have a debilitating mental illness that requires a lot of therapy and uh, a regimen of uh, medication to help me regulate that and get me to a place where I'm more healthy. Uh, but you might come into the biblical counseling and say, I have anxiety. And then they'll open up the Bible to a Bible verse where it says, do not be anxious. And they'll say, see, problem solved. But Jesus says, don't be anxious. See, like you just need to have faith in what, so you know, what I want you to do is I want you to, to memorize this verse and pray this verse. And if you just do that well enough, your anxiety will go away. And there's not like that's not an entirely bad practice, right? In terms bring... of like even the des- description of biblical counseling, it's it just sounds like like that's a Christian discipleship. Like, right? We, you come under somebody's counsel and you talk about the struggles and the sins that you have, and you scriptures brought to bear on that. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, prayer, scripture, memorizing scripture, these things do have. There's been actual psychological studies on this that those kinds of practices do actually have a positive effect on your mental health when you do them consistently. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, that they're not a replacement for some kind of treatment that is backed by research. Right. And the same, in the same way, if someone comes and says, I have cancer, right? And now that biblical counselor just starts telling them, you know, reading verses of Jesus healing people and saying, look, you just ask and the Lord will heal you. Start praying for your miracle. Um, 
Because side note, actually, when my mom had cancer, somebody did that. They're like, just pray about it. Just the Lord will heal you. He'll bring a miracle. You just need to have enough faith. I wish I would have thought of that. That's so simple. Like, wow, where was I? I don't know why I'm at the doctor's office doing all this medical treatment and chemo. Like, what was I thinking? Uh, Like, maybe the Lord will actually use those things to bring about healing in my life. But anyways, it's the same concept as that. Right. I think now we're in a stage where we would think that's crazy. We would think it's crazy for someone to just suggest sitting down, not going to the doctor's office, not seeking any other like medical treatment. If you had cancer, just sit down and pray about it and ask for the Lord to bring about a miracle in your life. And if you don't receive a miracle, it's because you didn't have enough faith or you didn't pray enough. And sure, when we boil it down to seem that simple, Someone who might be, you know, in bill counseling might say, well, that's not what it is. Well, if you're saying this is the only kind of treatment, this is the only kind of step forward in someone trying to find healing from their mental illness, then that really is what you're saying is just pray for God to bring about a miracle in your life. And God can do miracles, but how many number of times do we see Miracles in the Bible compared to all of the other things that are happening in scripture. Right. right? And like the miracles the, are like the, not the, the reason why they're recorded in scripture is because they were so extraordinary. Right. It wasn't just it's not this, like this every, was happening every day, day. Yeah. you know, every day Jesus was coming and like healing a blind man. There were plenty of blind people within the time of Jesus that were not healed. And so, just to point people there is not only um, not viewing the whole counsel of God like in its entirety, but it's also harmful because then someone begins to think, I don't have enough faith to be healed. What am I doing wrong? Why am I continuing to suffer with this? Why is the Lord continuing to punish me? Like then we start to get into all sorts of wonky theology about our relationship with God, who we are. What does it really mean to be saved anyways? What does it mean to have a Christian life? Like all of those things are brought into question when we tell someone the way to cope with your anxiety, the way to cope with your um, any form of mental illness is to just memorize the Bible and pray for God to bring forth a miracle. Yeah, there was a professor that uh, we had in seminary, and he was both a clinician and a theologian, and he said biblical counseling is neither biblical nor is it counseling. Right. So in well, in the and- sense of where it these practices in principle, they seem like it would be good to encourage people, and yes, we should encourage people to pray and memorize scripture and uh, have relevant scripture to share with them that meets them in whatever crisis they're in, but when say that that's the only thing that could work in in helping your anxiety, your depression, your ADD, whatever it it might be. Like you said, it heaps shame on people. It puts a burden on people uh, that ought not to be there. It burdens their consciences. It, It holds their consciences captive to this very fundamentalistic understanding of mental health that, uh, it's just not necessary when there's so many resources available that can help people to relate with the feelings that they're having. They can relate with the the difficult relational uh, situations that they're going through. 
um, it's putting this undue burden on their conscience. And so in that respect, it's not uh, showing compassion, and that's you know not a, a biblical a way to, to seek to help somebody. And then it's not counseling. Anybody who studied counseling, uh, there, there are certainly different uh, schools of thought on how counseling should go. But the thing is, like, there are people with, like, decades of research and there are best practices and there are people who go to school for this not only in an undergraduate program but then they go to a graduate program and then they have literally thousands of hours where they are trained in how to help people get to a healthier place and uh, to have a five-week course where you memorize some Bible verses and get a certificate that isn't backed up by any kind of clinical authority to then say that, you know, we have the answer and these clinicians don't have any helpful information or practices for you. Um, It's certainly not counseling. It's not biblical. And ultimately I don't, I don't think it's helpful. Right. And that, is obviously an important element to us is there are people who have spent hours and hours and hours and years of their life studying one particular field. And when you seek their help and when you seek their expertise in, in the form of counseling, there is some kind of trust that they understand the way that your mind works, the way that your body works, the way that like all of those mechanisms are happening in a way that you don't even understand, right? Because you're going to seek help and there's a trust that they are going to uh, try and work through that with you where in biblical counseling, it's not even, oftentimes it's not even a medical professional who's put together the course, the five-week course. Like it's, it's people who are not trained at all in that area who probably have a love to help people. So their heart is certainly there. Right. It's not to say they're not good people. Yeah. No, I know. But I'm just expressing like there's not much additional credibility oftentimes. Right. Like being those... a kind person who wants to help doesn't necessarily mean that you're equipped to yes. offer help. Yes. I mean, sometimes you are depending on the severity of the issue. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a friend who's in a, in crisis and you pray with them and you offer some kind of biblical wisdom or something like that. Yeah, obviously that's really helpful. But when you're talking to someone who has clinical anxiety, depression, ADD, whatever it might be, you, you're out of your depth. You are just simply out of your depth when it comes to uh, your expertise. And I know there's a lot of like suspicion of like credentialism, quote unquote, mm-hmm. among uh, conservatives, evangelicals, um, and it obviously isn't to say that just because someone has a PhD, their word is second only to Jesus, or if they have an MD, that their 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 theories are you know unassailable or whatever it might be. And obviously, if you're in treatment, and you have to um, make decisions and evaluations on how much something is actually helping you, how much it actually aligns with you know whatever advice they're giving you actually aligns with your biblical convictions. Um, because, you know, there's a, there's a little bit, it's not an exact science on that. Um, so we're not advocating for, you know, a kind of credentialism that gatekeeps anyone helping someone from 
right. uh, with a mental yeah. health issue. But it is to say that it's unwise to disregard um, an entire field of study because there's there's just something of this anti-science, anti-intellectual bent within us. Um, I think we need to set that cynicism aside and understand that you know, all truth is God's truth. And so any kind of scientific research that arrives at something that's helpful, like that belongs to God. Like Mm -hmm. God created us in his image to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And the measure to which that we can understand the natural world, including the natural world that exists inside the chemistry of our bodies, that's a gift from God. And we shouldn't spit in the face of a gift from God. Yeah, exactly. And, That isn't to say there isn't a place for the church within the mental health crisis and within the topic of um, mental health issues, because the reality is people are are showing up to our churches. I mean, hopefully, right? But there's people within our churches who are definitely dealing with mental health issues, um, and they might not be seeking any kind of um, medical help at this point. So what are the steps within the church that we can take to actually be part of extending the hand and feet of Jesus and it becoming that community that surrounds them, that loves them and cares about them um, and sees them and hears them. And I think that is what is most important about the church and the church's role is God designed us to be this community of believers. And the thing that unites us together is our faith in Christ. So we can come from all sorts of different backgrounds, different walks of life and everyone's going to come like with their own form of baggage and damage and dysfunction. Um, and some people are going to come with some type of mental health issues and writing off those issues, pretending they don't exist, saying, you know, here, pray a few verses and meet with me once a week and I'll sit down and pray with you. All of that is helpful. Some of it is not as helpful as others. But I think what's most important about what we do within the walls of our church, within the communities of our church, within the events of our church, is that we have to um, start to destigmatize mental illness. And so maybe that is just talking about it in small groups or talking about it from the pulpit. Um, But we have to acknowledge that there are so many people within our own congregations that are enduring some type of a mental health issue. So to pretend it doesn't exist is a huge error on the end of the church because there are people in our midst that are suffering and that they need help. And like where else to go than within the loving arms of the church? Right. And that can seem pretty daunting. And I think that's why a lot of churches just kind of like, "Mm, I'm not going to really get into that. Um, But there are a lot of resources that you're, church can provide i'm the church that we go to does a really good job of this have a really robust care ministry and folded into that are people who are going to pray with you um going to meet with you to kind of help assess like um do you need some other help and just a robust reference list of professionals to uh, point people to we have things like celebrate recovery uh grief share groups divorce care groups uh those three things in particular like they actually come prepackaged to you and there's, you know, training that needs to be involved, but like really all you have to do is facilitate those groups uh, and you can destigmatize some of those things, especially, you know, 
I guess all three of those. So celebrate recovery, you know, addiction recovery, um, grief, the process of that. Uh, like we need tools to help kind of move through that divorce care. That's one that I, I'm really glad that, um, we're seeing more and more churches lean into divorce care because obviously we have an understanding of, um, marriage and divorce that we don't believe that divorce is the right thing to do except for in, you know, very special circumstances where there's adultery, there's abandonment, there's abuse. Um, but the fact of the matter is people have gone through it still. Right. And there's pain behind and that. And they still need there's healing that needs to be. Yeah. They still need help. Yeah. yeah. And so there are resources like that. So there's a lot of things that church churches can do. Um, but, and should do and should be celebrated for doing and are doing and should be celebrated for that. Um, but again, like that, they cannot take the place of clinicians in the same way that we can't take places of doctors uh, or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that is so important. There's still things we can do. We can remind people struggling with mental illness that they're not alone. That is, is so important because that's one of the major things at play with people who struggle with mental illness is that isolation and loneliness and feeling like there's something wrong with me and I'm the only one dealing with this. And if we, we come at them with this biblical counseling and you're just not praying enough and you don't have another faith, enough faith, we just, you're like just keep shame on it. Yeah. That. You're reinforcing what they're already dealing with, with the thoughts that are already running wild in their mind. But to actually say, no, you are not alone. Like even Christ himself like cried out in despair on the cross. Like even Christ himself cried out and like felt that sense of like l- separation um, from God the Father, right? I mean, you hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And obviously there's like a whole bunch of theology behind that. But it's this also this idea that Christ endured the types of suffering and loneliness and disconnection throughout his time on earth. Um, and we can even lean into that. I mean, look at all the lament Psalms. Like those talk about loneliness all the time. Those talk about like, Lord, where are you? You feel far from me. And of course we know like God's not far from us, but that doesn't take away from what we are dealing with in that moment of time. Right. Um, I think another thing is, that comes alongside reminding people that they're not alone is reminding them that they're not to blame. Ooh, that's a good one. In the same way, Jesus healed, I think he healed a blind man and his disciples said, who is to blame? Yeah, who sinned, him or his parents? Because he was born blind, so they were confused because they assumed that because he was blind, somebody sinned. But Mm -hmm. how could he have sinned when he was born that way it must have been his parents right and jesus says no that's not the way it works jesus said neither (laughs) like we live in a fallen world and this is kind of part of that right it it doesn't mean it was anyone's fault it's not because of anyone's um decision that they're this way and also it's not a lack of faith like we we can't tell people it's a lack of faith we can't suggest it's a lack of faith and or that it's like this weakness of conscience or even demon possession i've actually heard that one before and like please don't say that 
That's oh yeah, there's one. <laughs> that's uh, not true. Popular pastor in the Nashville area that I won't name specifically, but uh, made a lot of waves and continues to make a lot of waves because he believes that uh, autism is uh, not a clinical thing, but it's actually just uh, demon possession. Oh gosh, that's which so and he has a very large platform no. and he is very popular among a lot of people in evangelical circles, and that is just an aberrant view of yeah. everything. Yeah. It's just, it's bad. It's destructive. And it's almost not even that, worth addressing. It's so bad, no. but we have to address it but because have, it's so prevalent still. And no. And like that idea within the church of just, this is totally a side note. Sorry. But that idea of like explaining away someone's issue as demon possession. I've, I've heard about it with a lot of other things, like a lot of other um, issues within our society Like some people are just saying, well, that's demon possession. That's demon possession. Like everything is just now being classified. You get a demon. You get a demon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And demon, demon, demonic activity and influence is real. Yeah, but you can't just say that. It can't be used as a catch-all to explain away every physical phenomenon that occurs in the world. And that's like 50 million people now. 50 million adults and 2.7 million youth. Right, they're all just demon possessed. Everyone's I mean, just demon possessed. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. Uh, the greatest thing, getting back on track, the greatest thing the church can do is be near the brokenhearted, and that is our call as Christians, anyways. And so, being aware of this mental health crisis in our world, being aware of people suffering from mental health around you. Maybe they're in your families. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they sit next to you. Maybe they're part of your small groups. The fact that we create space to let them be open about that, to share about that, to pour their hearts out and like express their brokenness in that moment is what Christ has called us to do. And we have to care about their restoration, right? We should be people who care about redemption and restoration in our individual lives and in in the world right and jesus came not just to redeem us from our sin although that's certainly the case but also just from our brokenness and so a lot of times those things go hand in hand even though your brokenness that you're experiencing in a specific way is not the result of a specific sin that you've committed generally speaking the sin and brokenness go hand in hand and the the a solution to both of them to bring healing to both of those issues is found in Jesus. Yeah. And in just real practical ways is like, remember those people in your life that are struggling with mental health issues. Remember them, think about them, check in on them, invite them over, like just be intentional about loving and caring on them. And oftentimes that just means inviting them into like a tighter community with you into a genuine and true relationship with you. And so, no, I am not clinically trained in this area and you might not be either. He says, so don't call me. So, like, I'm not going to have the answers, but... I can be your friend still. Yeah, yeah, and I can be mindful of what you're struggling with. Right. I can be aware of it and acknowledge it. So not just be your friend, like, hey, you want to go get coffee? Like, how are you doing? Like, how are you really doing? And, and developing a relationship that someone can t- that call you or text you and say, like, I'm just in a dark place right now. 
And you might not know how to pull them out of there. But that's also not your job. Right. You're not the, the savior. <laughs> like You're not equipped to be the savior. But even just being in communication and being in connection with them and talking to them. And of course, then probably encouraging them to go seek, you know, professional help that can actually like bring about treatment plans and all of that. Um, that's wise too. But we have to allow our relationships with them to be the light of Christ piercing through their lives. Because how sad is it for someone to struggle with mental health? To feel the weight of that darkness. And sometimes depression just feels so dark. Like it feels like you're sitting. I cried on the last episode too. It feels like you're sitting in this dark pit. And you can't get out of it. You can't. Like you, There's just nothing you can do to get out of it. And sometimes it's not a friend checking in on you that pulls you out of that darkness. But it reminds you that you're not sitting in the pit alone. It reminds you that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Like we're going to get there at some point, but you personally just start to isolate. And then when no one reaches out to you, like it just keeps reaffirming those things that are already on your mind. And so as believers, as people who are called to care for other people, the greatest thing we can do within the abilities that we're equipped to do, right? I mean, if you are a trained professional, like, please do more. Help us. <laughs> like, help the rest of us, please. <laughs> but if you're not, like, it's not your job to diagnose them. It's not your job to come up with a treatment plan. It's not your job to, like, check in and make sure they read their Bible verse on anxiety that day. Like, don't do that. Just be a friend. Check in on them and, and show them you care. And the church can begin to... Be the light that pierces through the darkness of mental illness. Right, yeah. And I think just the the truth of the matter is that when we're willing to be burdened by other people's burdens, mm. all of a sudden that burden is just a little bit lighter. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kindnessproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. This is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Ministry podcast. Learn how to share and defend your faith by listening to us weekly. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.